Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's installment of Rated LGBT Radio. As I promised you every week, um, our subject matter is intriguing, exciting, important. Um, I would say this week's show probably falls as much in the important category as anything else. Um, We have an esteemed author on. He is the author of Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique. Um, His name is Syed uh, Ashtan, and uh, I probably messed up his last name. Apologies ahead of that. Um, And Syed is uh, probably one of the most educated people we have ever had on the program. Um, He's the Associate uh, Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Swarthmore College. Um, He uh, served as a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University. He has um, a PhD in anthropology and Middle Eastern studies an MA in Social Anthropology from Harvard University, a Master in Public Policy degree, um, also from the Harvard Kennedy School, and a BA from Swarthmore. Um, The book, uh, Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique, which we will be discussing in a few minutes, um, has gotten uh, just huge, huge praise for its importance. Um, Critics have called it utterly brilliant, Um, They have said it is a breath of fresh air in the academic climate in which radical has become synonymous with crude schisms between the West and East. It is authentic and inauthentic, uh, where that discussion is authentic, inauthentic, pure and sellout. This book provides a much-needed nuanced account of queer Palestine. Um, It is brilliantly weaved together. uh, it is uh, powerful and prophetic, so um, you know obviously an important work. Also, um, if you do want to find out about queer Palestine and you uh, Google that, um, you can see that there isn't enough discussion, um, and it is the easiest way to find this book because it is the first thing that comes up. Um, so, an important discussion today, um, and we're. We're looking forward to uh, the discussion with Syed in just a minute. Before we get to that, I'm going to bring on my esteemed colleague and co-host, Brody Luck. Brody, welcome. Hey, Rob, and good afternoon, good morning, good day to all of our listeners across the globe. Thank you so much for joining us and subscribing to our podcast. Um, Today is... uh, been kind of an interesting day uh, all the way across the board. Uh, relative to our um, guest, it was uh, announced um, about roughly 35 minutes ago uh, that the State of Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they've agreed to a ceasefire aimed at stopping the 11 days of fighting uh, that has killed a vast number of people uh, in the Gaza Strip. Um, the truce uh, was uh, 
brought about following pressure by both U.S. President uh, Biden and the government uh, of uh, Egypt and other people that were directly involved uh, to convince the two sides to back off. So they expect the ceasefire to take effect uh, tomorrow. Um, looking around, obviously, at LGBTQ news, um, Tennessee uh, this week's uh, the governor has just completely gone off the rails in signing what the human rights campaign has basically labeled a slate of hate. Uh, on Tuesday, he signed a bill which mirrors the Arkansas bill, which bans gender-affirming medical care for trans youth. Uh, this measure prohibits medical and healthcare professionals from prescribing puberty blockers or hormonal therapy um, and other forms of uh, care that will be gender affirming. The uh, Tennessee Equality Product uh, noted that it's not a ban on gender affirming care for youth who have uh, entered puberty already. It essentially is banning it uh, for anybody prior to that, uh, which at this point in Tennessee, as they pointed out, no one's doing anyway. Um, now, this is in addition to uh, legislation that the governor has already signed. We signed this week alone uh, a bathroom bill uh, that would prevent uh, students in the public, uh, public school sector of Tennessee from being able to use affirming uh, bathrooms um, at all. They'd be forced to either use bathrooms of their quote-unquote biological sex or if there was a set aside, which normally that doesn't happen. And then the other bathroom bill, which is probably even more onerous, requires Tennessee businesses to post signs uh, to let people know that they have gender-neutral bathrooms that could serve trans people. And, and the language basically reflects that in the bill. The governor also signed a sweeping anti-LGBTQ education bill, which is basically what the advocacy community has labeled a no-promo-homo law. Um, and then, of course, there was the ban against transgender uh, youth uh, that he signed last week uh, from participating in uh, sports across the state of Tennessee. So for transgender Tennesseans right now, um, they are very much under the gun. Uh, the, the governor has completely um, just gone out there and said, this is it, you know, don't care. Uh, and I, I personally fully expect losses to be uh, proceeding right. shortly. Yeah. Um, also, we had a couple of things happen uh, in the entertainment world. Uh, Demi Lovato uh, came out in a Twitter post uh, uh, as non-binary yesterday. And uh, Billy Porter, uh, in an article that was co-written with a Hollywood reporter, uh, journalist uh, announced that uh, he'd been keeping a diagnosis of being HIV positive uh, basically a secret for 14 years. And he, he also went on Tamlin Hall yesterday, uh, the show in New York, and talked about that. Um, and so that, that was a couple of entertainment revelations that occurred. And uh, then uh, one last thing I wanted to bring up was a federal lawsuit was filed uh, in Washington State uh, by a so-called Christian marriage and family therapist uh, trying to seek to uh, overturn the state's conversion therapy ban. Um, and he's being um, represented 
by the Alliance Defending Freedom, who is one of two organizations that has been pushing hard over the last few months uh, for a lot of this anti-trans legislation that we've been seeing. And, of course, they're very much anti-LGBTQ, uh, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, not a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, I got uh, I got a quick note earlier this morning, which I thought was kind of cool. I'd share with you, uh, but state legislator um, Danny Hernandez in Arizona uh, will be uh, announcing, or has announced today, that he is filing to run for Congress in Arizona. So uh, we shortly will have uh, uh, an openly gay state representative uh, taking aim for one of the congressional seats. Uh, in the state. I first met him. Uh, he was an aide to uh, then-Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Uh, and as a matter of fact, during the horrible, horrible mass shooting in a congressional meet-and-greet where the Congresswoman was grievously wounded, uh, it was Dan that held her hand and kept her from bleeding. Uh, and you can see him in news footage uh, helping load her into the helicopter. So, uh, But anyway, he's been... Uh, a school board official, state representative, uh, and just a moving force uh, for LGBTQ rights in Arizona. So he's been asked for Congress. So good on him. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. The, actually, the, the last part where you you uh, put him in context with the, uh, the shooting, that's where um, I remember him most from. So that's, that's really excellent um, and, and, and a fascinating trajectory on his part. So. Oh, I think it's great Very to cool. see, you know, this kind yeah. of progress. Yeah. And he's a, he's a nice guy. Really is the, uh, he was a uh, part of the, uh, uh, folks that voted against, uh, the, what was referred to as no promo law, promo homo law, uh, that, uh, the Arizona's governor vetoed, but had been passed by the Arizona house about a month ago. Uh, so yeah, it's been a legislative slate of just, just absolutely awful um, anti-LGBTQ legislation. I mean, it's just been just been butt ugly. Yeah, so. it's, you know, it's it's exhausting. I mean, it's like um, well, we've got this this whole thing happening in Tennessee, and it just, um, I mean, it is shocking and appalling and frustrating because there, there's no quick ramifications back um, on it. Um, and, uh, you know, and anything that does come back seems to fall completely on deaf ears. It's so, um, uh, I don't know, uh, there's no depth to what they're doing. I mean, it, it is just, it, there's no logic, there's no, no cases, there's no reality that they're coming up against. These, these things are just coming up and making laws. Um, to make feel, people feel good about being anti-transgender. It's, it's like, really pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been, you know, an endless torrent of, uh, you know, of just one piece of legislation after the other. And, and unfortunately, it, it's not just one or two states. This legislative season, at last count, uh, there's been 30 states where this stuff has occurred and it, it's just, it's horrific. And it's, you know, one of these things where everybody's busy fighting, you know, left and right on this. It's just that the, the worst of them seems to be coming out of Arkansas, Texas, and Tennessee, those three. Um, right. 
So, you know, that's just where it's been. But, yeah, not good times at all. No, it's tough. It's tough. Well, speaking of not good times at all, um, we're going to refocus our attention now over to um, the Middle East. And um, I want to welcome on our our guest, um, Saeed. Saeed, welcome to the show. Um, happy to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you both for this invitation. It's such an honor to be with you and to be in conversation with your Listeners, I really appreciate your wonderful introduction at the beginning, and I'm really looking forward to our exchange today. Uh, me also. Um, I wanted to ask you, if before we get, because you, you have um, really fascinating um, insights um, in your work um, addressing um, the, whole, the whole issue, but I wanted to go to you personally first, and please uh, tell us what it is like to grow up um, in Palestine and being LGBTQ? Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a great question, and I think that there are experiences that queer people face in Palestine that are very unique to the Palestinian context, and then there are other experiences that are much more generalizable in terms of queer people's experiences all around the world, even here in the U.S. Some ways that our experiences are distinctive are that we live under Israeli military occupation. So Palestinians are a stateless people who have no form of citizenship and are denied their basic socioeconomic rights and civic and political rights. So as a result, that puts queer people in more precarious positions. They have to face you know, different systems of oppression, including internal systems of oppression from homophobia within Palestinian society, but then they also have to face the oppression from the Israeli military occupation. But like so many parts of the world, it also is very contextual even within Palestine. So, you know, I come from a more privileged background. So if you live in a city versus a rural area, if you come from a more progressive family, more educated background, more cosmopolitan background, it's a lot easier to face acceptance and and be able to lead a life of dignity. But when you come from a more conservative background, it's much harder. And that applies here in the U.S. and in so many parts of the world as well. Right. Yeah, and I, I totally related to that, those parts of the book where you described those kind of situations. Like you, you described a, a funeral of somebody who was not out but had certainly a circle of, of friends and loved ones who were in the community and people sitting in the funeral itself, nobody talking about it, but recognizing each other and sort of this sort of secret underground recognition happening, which I relate to. I mean, that's what I grew up with here in the United States. You know, it's like the involvement of LGBTQ awareness is, you know, gone leaps and bounds in terms of its speed here. Um, but certainly there was, there was a day where it, it was exactly like that. Um, not to get further ahead, but, um, a lot of Americans have this perception of, of the Islamic world and like the honor killings of young, young men and um, uh, everything else by families and all that. And how predominant is that? You debunk some of that in your book. Um, is, that, is that a reality or is it fiction? 
You know, I, I'm so grateful that you read the book so closely. I'm deeply honored. And the, the question that you raised is, is an important one, especially because, you know, sometimes it's the most sensationalist images from the region that are the ones that gain the most traction and that shape people's consciousness here in the U.S. about the region. So, for example, I've never ever heard of a gay honor killing of a queer man in Palestinian society. You know, we have no um, evidence that that's ever, ever taken place anywhere in Palestine. Of course, in ISIS-controlled Syria and Iraq, neighboring countries, but different countries, there were some, you know, high-profile cases of queer people or people suspected of being queer who were executed by these murderous ISIS, you know, criminal thugs. And that's absolutely horrific and heart-wrenching. Now, this wasn't happening every day, but there were, you know, a finite number of those cases and those cases are horrific and they get a lot of attention. But they don't map onto the Palestinian context. It's very, very different in the Palestinian context. Although we have had some honor killings over the years against women, uh, against for women who are suspected of engaging in, you know, non-normative gender sexuality practices who bring, quote-unquote, dishonor to their families and then could be targeted by a family member and even killed. And those cases are absolutely heartbreaking. There are precedents for those in Palestine, and the women's movement, the feminist movement, is working really, really hard to eradicate those kinds of practices, which are, are not common or frequent, but are absolutely horrendous when they do take place. Right, right. How, how do you feel the, both the queer movement and the feminist movement in Palestine is gaining traction? Is, I mean, are there successes being made in, in influencing the consciousness of the, the total population? And, and understand this, this is difficult as the most um, predominant issue for everybody there is the oppression um, that everybody is living under otherwise. But even with that, is, is there traction being made? Absolutely. You know, we, we are an incredibly diverse society, an incredibly heterogeneous society. We have Christians and Muslims. We have religious and secular, old and young feminist and patriarchal, homophobe and queer, rich and poor, urban and rural, you name it. Palestinian society, just like any society, is incredibly rich. And in that context, there's a very, very rich history of a feminist movement going back for many, many decades, a very strong women's rights movement, a very strong feminist civil society. And the, the feminists debated for many, many years this notion, what has to come first, the liberation of the nation or the liberation of the woman. And so there were people who had different positions, but now there's near consensus within Palestinian feminist society that the two struggles cannot be divorced, that they're inextricably linked, and that the struggle for national liberation and the struggle for women's rights have to come hand in hand. And so the queer Palestinian movement is much, much younger. Uh, Most of us also identify as feminists or allies to feminists. Our movement is maybe 15 to 20 years old, but it is an offshoot and a byproduct of the feminist movement. And in the queer movement, we're now at where the feminist movement was many years before, where we're debating what has to come first, national liberation or queer liberation. And in my book, I try to make a very forceful case 
for why it is that queer liberation and national liberation are equally important and one cannot be prioritized over the other. Right, right. Brody? Sorry about that. I had to. I, I I always put my mute button on so I can listen very quietly, and then uh, yeah, then I go. Oh wait, 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 wait. Where's that button at? Anyway, um, <laughs> looking looking at you know the situation on the ground, I think one of the most difficult things um, for many people um, said to understand is you know the day to day you know experience uh, and, and what it really means. Uh, for a you know uh, for a queer Palestinian um, and you know the fact that there is a, just a completely different environment and atmosphere um, and a struggle there. Uh, do you mind describing, for example, we'll, we'll just take you know your typical gay young Palestinian uh, who wants to be around other LGBTQ people, uh, and we'll, I guess we'll use the, the, the West Bank, you know, that part of uh, Jerusalem as the example. But describe exactly just how difficult this really truly is so that the reader can kind of wrap their arms, or listener rather, can kind of wrap their arms around just, you know, what that means. So it's related to what degree of visibility or invisibility the person, you know, has the privilege or lack thereof of enjoying. So, for example, if you're able to sort of stay under the radar, it's actually not so bad because, you know, our society is a very homosocial society and homosociality is different than homosexuality. Homosociality is when you have affection, really intimate affection between people of the same gender, but it's not necessarily romantic or sexual. So it's very common for men to kiss on the cheek, for women to embrace one another as friends, as neighbors, as family members, you know, etc. That's totally normal. So Within that context, if you're queer, you can sort of stay under the radar and you can find ways to navigate your life and build community, maybe even have a partner, live with your partner, etc. And you don't need to draw public attention to yourself, which could then, you know, trigger all kinds of like, you know, harsh responses verbally or maybe even physically. But not everyone enjoys the privilege of invisibility, right? So visibility doesn't work for everyone. It's problematic for, for a lot of people. Visibility can be harmful for a lot of people, but not everyone has the privilege of being invisible. So if you're a more effeminate, for example, gay man, it becomes much, much harder for you because you're being read as woman-like, your voice is not deep enough, your walk is not straight enough, you're not masculine enough in this very macho society. And as a result, you can stand out and you can face you know, different kinds of bullying and othering within society. So, but, but in addition to these internal dynamics, you also have to face the, the Israeli system of oppression. And Israel has had a long history of entrapping LGBTQ Palestinians to serve as informants or collaborators with the Israeli intelligence and security services. So queer people are systematically targeted by Israel and they're put in very precarious positions. You know, look, we have this incriminating you know, photograph or, or wiretapping of you. We know that you are gay or lesbian. You have a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, and you need to work with us. You need to spy on your family, on your community, on your neighborhood, on your coworkers, etc. And if you don't work with us, then there's an ultimatum. We will out you then to your family or to your community. Now, if you come from a conservative background, that can put you in a really, really dangerous position, and that can be really, really dreadful. Now, in my case, for example, I'm totally out. My family is very loving and supportive, 
everyone back mm-hmm. home in Palestine and the West Bank mm-hmm. knows. So for me, that threat wouldn't work because I met with acceptance. But unfortunately, this is a very, very real phenomenon that people have to contend with. Well, let me have a quick follow-up question then. Um, and, and this question um, is pretty simple. Are LGBTQ Israelis welcoming of uh, queer Palestinians? And uh, I also want to know, too, for our listeners that uh, Hamas and Hezbollah absolutely do not and does not define Palestinians. So I, I want to just throw that out there. But let's go back. Are LGBTQ Israelis welcoming of queer Palestinians? Yeah, you know, there's a very nuanced answer to that. So, so on one hand, there is an Israeli peace movement. There is an Israeli left. A lot of my dear, dear friends are Jewish Israelis who are very progressive and very critical of the Israeli government and very critical of Israel's human rights violations and very supportive of the Palestinian struggle and, and even sometimes put their bodies on the line to protest along Palestinians and to help, you know, escort children to school, to protect people from Israeli tanks. I mean, there are some amazing Israelis of conscience out there. And so, you know, B'Tselem, which is Israel's largest human rights organization, they just recently issued a, a really important report about how Israel is an apartheid state that's engaging in segregation and discrimination against Palestinians. So a disproportionate number of the Israeli left and Israeli peace movement are LGBTQ. I have noticed over the years that you know, a huge number of, of progressive Israeli peace activists are themselves queer. And that gives me so much hope. And that's, I think, a really beautiful and inspiring, uh, an inspiring reality. At the same time, again, this is why this is nuanced, the vast majority of LGBTQ Israelis um, so part of the majority of, of society within Israel are aligned with the Israeli state. Um, and so they are not, they do not share. So the Israeli peace movement, the left in Israel is a minority and, the, and Israel keeps shifting to the right. Its politics keep shifting to the right. And a lot of progressive Israelis are leaving the country and actually ironically moving to Berlin, Germany. That's very ironic. So actually my yeah. other book <laughs> looks at the latter phenomenon. My, my other book is on this, on this Germany phenomenon. But what's, what's, what's unfortunate is that the vast majority, unfortunately, of the LGBTQ Israeli organizations, etc., are still very much supportive of the Israeli state, serve in the Israeli military, help enforce Israel's brutal occupation of the Palestinian territories. So on one hand, the queer population gives me a lot of hope because they're disproportionately represented in the peace movement. But at the same time, we have a long way to go because the peace movement remains such a small minority and we need to engage the majority much more um, vigorously. Um, Would you say, looking at that, um, and, and again, I'm just curious, you know, one of the things that has been ongoing, of course, are legislative uh, gains uh, for the LGBTQ population in the state of Israel um, over the last you know, 10 to 15 years. It's a little problematic because if a Palestinian queer person is living in the state of Israel, not, not outside of it, meaning, you know, the areas that like, for example, the West Bank, um, you know, are they actually sharing in legislative gains that 
open things up for LGBTQ Israelis, or do you think there's kind of a separation there because of the fact they're Palestinian? Yeah, you know, I think that the LGBTQ community in Israel should be applauded and commended for their very, very hard work. Um, You know, on one hand, I am critical of the fact that overwhelmingly they're not extending their solidarity to Palestinians. But but at the same time, I give them credit that internally within Jewish-Israeli society, they're working really hard to have advances with LGBTQ rights, including legislative advances. And those definitely exist. And those should be applauded. At the same time, there does tend to be an exaggerated claim that the Israeli government makes in its pinkwashing, its propaganda efforts to try to portray Israel as a democratic, modern, progressive state, rather than as a very, very, you know, brutal, you know, racist, you know, violent state. You know, it engages in this propaganda, and as a result, it inflates. And as a result, there's an exaggerated sense that many queer people, for example, here in the U.S. have of what it's like for queer people in Israel and what queer rights look like and what the legislation looks like in Israel. So, you know, there is some queer empowerment. Tel Aviv pride is is large, etc. But there's a long way to go. And in Israel, they don't have same-sex marriages. The, the personal status legal system is still defined by the Orthodox uh, religious courts, which are very, very backwards on LGBTQ rights. And within the Israeli Knesset in the parliament, there are very conservative right-wing forces that block attempts to, to have equal rights for the LGBTQ community in Israel. So there are really, there's a long, long way to go. And that homophobia in Israel often gets elided as a result of this kind of pinkwashing propaganda. And, and part of that pinkwashing propaganda is this false notion that Israel is not only a gay haven for Israelis, but also for Palestinians, when actually Israel does not provide haven or refuge or even asylum for LGBTQ Palestinians from the occupied territories who go to Israel. And queer Palestinians who live in Tel Aviv, for example, they face significant racism, discrimination. They're hunted down by the Israeli security services. They really live in very difficult conditions. I've known people over the years who have had to flee altogether Israel-Palestine or who have had to work as illegal prostitutes in Israel or who have been entrapped to work as collaborators or informants by the Israeli security services. So um, there's a much more rosy portrayal of queer rights in Israel, but the reality, I think, is much more complex and much more nuanced than that. Um, Saad, could you do a little definition for our readers and for those who haven't read your book about um, exactly what is, quote-unquote, pink washing and what is also pink watching, um, which are two things you go into detail on. Absolutely, absolutely. I would be happy to. So pinkwashing is, as I mentioned, a propaganda discourse. And what it does is that it draws attention to a purported advanced LGBTQ rights record in Israel in order to detract attention away from Israel's gross violations of Palestinian human rights. So it creates a binary logic where you have Israel on one hand and Palestine on the other. Israel is generalized to be a gay haven. Palestine is generalized to be, you know, a homophobic, you know, society. And as a result, the the liberal Western subject should support Israel over the Palestinians. It should support the gay-friendly nation over the homophobic nation. So homophobia and questions of queerness 
gets weaponized as a civilizational discourse to pathologize Palestinians as backwards, homophobic, and to then justify the oppression that Palestinians face. And what pink washing is, so again, the washing is, the pink washing is using queerness to wash over the human rights violations. Pink watching is the opposite. So queer Palestinian activists have for many years now been engaged in pink watching. So when they see the pink washing campaign, they respond and they, they really systematically demonstrate how it's propaganda, how it's false, and they correct the record and they create an archive that makes it very, very, very clear that actually a lot of these representations are false and are not true and they provide a much more accurate understanding of the queer Israel-Palestine landscape. Right. I, there's, a, there's a certain, I mean, absolutely on the, the pink watching, um, I think calling the record out and having it known and not allowing, um, you know, a, a PR campaign to imply that things are safer than they are or that um, uh, queer people are accepted no matter whether they're Palestinian or, or Israeli or, or, you know, out of the country altogether coming and visiting, um, whether that is a reality or not, should be called out. Um, but there were things that you talked about in the book about, you know, protests against um, um, them having pride parades or, um, you, know, you know, putting any kind of focus on LGBTQ, which to me seems like it, it could actually be counterproductive. I mean, it's, and this may be my naivete as an American and not part of the environment, but it would seem to me that that those, um, you know, while Israel is trying to embrace gay rights so that they can sort of use it as a cover-up, they can all be, they can also have that used as leverage on them to say, listen, you want to make yourself look good, you know, we're calling this out, you know, you know, it's like, but, I guess I, I have a certain frustration of, of so we don't have pride so that they can't use it. I mean, what is what is the what is the end game there? What is the objective ultimately? Yeah, you know, I'm a professor, my friend, so I do have to say you have done your homework very well. I'm very impressed <laughs> um, that that you that you read not only so closely but caught this subtlety and and absolutely a major thrust of my book is to really trace the rise of the LGBTQ social movement in Palestine and how it's become a transnational solidarity movement and solidarity with queer Palestinians. But one of my main findings is that there's this phenomenon of what I describe as radical purism. And we see this radical purism in so many progressive social movements where you have this kind of moral vanguard on the far left who see themselves as the most pure, the most self-righteous, you know, and they, they engage in this kind of excommunication and policing of anyone who disagrees with them on principles or strategies in any way. And I argue that we need a radical pluralism instead, rather than radical, uh, you, know, pure, you know, this kind of purity politics. We actually need to be pluralistic and embrace many, many different kinds of strategies. And so while I do very clearly define pinkwashing, define pinkwatching, give very real examples of both, I also caution against the, the radical purism that, that loses its rigor, you know, that we really, really mm -hmm. need to be thoughtful and rigorous in what we consider to be pinkwashing and what it is that needs to be contested. And we can't just 
you know, criticize everything and label everything as pinkwashing and call for everything to be shut down. As you mentioned, after a while, there are certain dynamics that do become counterproductive, and those can be really detrimental to the growth of a social movement because we want progressive social movements to reach their full potential, and we need to stop, you know, attacking one another. The left loves to eat its own. You know, we need to keep our eyes on the prize, and we need to keep moving forward and keep an open sense approach. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an issue in principle that we're also seeing in the United States um, with, uh, you know, a lot of the progressive gains that we've made and this kind of um, look backwards where there's just zero tolerance over anybody who had any kind of evolving position on LGBT rights in the past and, you know, what is being called, quote, unquote, erasure culture and all that. Um, so I think that is is a principle that, that across the board um, we need to learn. I think you're absolutely right. Brody? Yeah, I think uh, to follow up with that, one of the things that um, and, and, and the purity test uh, certainly has become very much a key factor, and we're seeing it a lot here uh, in the LGBTQ movement uh, in the United States, um, particularly uh, coming down uh, on the issue of, you know, trans Americans. And, and, and uh, you know, I, we're, we're now seeing kind of a fracture and splintering as there is discourse occurring uh, where some members of the community uh, are not accepting of the trans community, particularly trans women. And this has become almost a flashpoint. Um, and an aside to that, I guess one question I did want to ask uh, is uh, let's talk about tolerances, uh, even within Palestinian uh, circles as towards, and this is because I'm doing so much coverage of trans issues right now. So let's talk about, you know, tolerance and acceptance uh, of the different variants, non-binary, queer, or especially trans uh, within the Palestinian community. Uh, give us a little bit of a sketch of that, if you don't mind. Yeah, that is, I think, uh, that is an area where, you know, when we think about the LGBTQ community in Palestine, I think that's the new frontier, and that's the frontier where we're going to see the most growth, but where there's a long way to go. You know, the Arabic language is a very, very gendered language. There's a very strict binary between the masculine and the feminine, so it's embedded and institutionalized even in the language that we use and how it rolls off our tongues. We don't even have, you know, a gender, you know, a, a neutral, gender-neutral pronoun doesn't even exist in the Arabic language. So there's so much work to be done in terms of language, in terms of societal acceptance, and that makes it a lot, lot harder for people who are gender non-binary or gender non-conforming or trans within Palestinian society to truly reach their full potential. And so, you know, a lot of those folks are in very precarious positions. A lot of them do have to ultimately, you know, choose asylum and leaving the country, which completely makes sense. I totally, totally understand. But slowly, through the rise of the drag scene and drag community in Palestine, um, we're seeing more and more visibility on trans issues and more and more trans Palestinians. But 
you know, Palestinians are a small population and LGBTQ populations are a small minority within that. And then the trans community is even a smaller minority within that. So this is a very, very small population and it, it has really a long way to go in terms of receiving the support that it deserves. I find it interesting that uh, you mentioned drag culture because traditionally in many ways, including the United States, uh, in way of, of historical fact and precedence, it was actually drag uh, that, you know, propelled uh, a lot of the early parts of the movement in terms of a visibility uh, as some of those early drag performers were in fact transgender. And it, it just is interesting to me uh, to hear you say that because once again, we see the trans community uh, at the forefront, you know, of a movement for equality and equity uh, within the population group. And I think that's fascinating. Let's talk a minute about politics. Um, and again, you know, cognizant of the fact that there really isn't a government per se uh, among the Palestinians. that's uh, kind of been a struggle for a while. But within certain groups of people that are more or less fulfilling the role of quasi-governmental functions and things of that nature with an eventual goal, you know, obviously of a Palestinian state. But where does the LGBTQI community fit into the parameters of, you know, the thought process and the, and the construction there politically? Yeah, you know, no two contexts are ever identical. Uh, there will always be similarities and differences. I do think that there is a parallel to be made between the Native American indigenous struggle here in the United States and the Palestinian uh, struggle in the occupied Palestinian territories. And as we look at the reservations mm -hmm. that exist for Native Americans in the U.S., we, we do see clear parallels with the kinds of Bantu stands and, and the kinds of... Uh, you know, um, geographic, very, very limited areas that Israel is socially engineering the landscape so that Palestinians are confined to these disconnected and disparate geographic areas that are very, very, very densely populated and are, and are suffocated as a result. Um, so, you know, Native American communities here in, on the reservations, there are really, really significant internal social problems as a result of the oppression that they have faced historically, the trauma that they have inherited, the, the confinement that they face, the lack of equal rights that they face, and, you know, and the poverty that they face. And this leads to issues of alcoholism, domestic violence, you know, all sorts of challenges that Native American society has to face as a result of that settler colonial reality. And Israel-Palestine similarly is a settler colonial reality, and Palestinians do live in these kinds of reservation or South African Bantustan-like, you know, or, or inner-city America-like confined communities. And so within the U.S., you know, when you mentioned the, the governing bodies uh, within Palestine, within the U.S., the Native American reservations have very limited sovereignty. Ultimately, they're under U.S. sovereignty. And the Native American reservations have very, very limited authority, and, and their governmental bodies are very constrained. So similarly, the Palestinian governing authorities are very limited and very constrained and have very, very, very uh, confined sovereignty. And so politically, Palestinians then are divided between those who support Hamas, which is the more Islamist uh, group that uh, supports the use of violence in the struggle. Then there's Fatah, which is the more secular 
uh, organization that, that supports the use of nonviolence and diplomacy and negotiations. And then about a third of Palestinians are, are independents, you know, who do not support either major Palestinian political party. I myself am an independent in the Palestinian context. And there are many people I've seen in the U.S. who are also very frustrated with the two-party system here, Democrat versus Republican. More and more people are identifying as independents even in the U.S. But how this fits vis-a-vis the queer community in Palestine, there aren't a lot of us who support Hamas. <laughs> um, and, and there are a good number of us who support Fatah, the second political party that I mentioned. But I say the vast majority of the queer community in Palestine share my politics in terms of being really, really independent and feeling quite alienated from the two major Palestinian political parties, not just because of concerns about a crisis of leadership that, that we're facing, but also the, the very, very limited power that they actually have. They're very inefficacious, and that is a result of the Israeli policy. Well, and fortunately, you know, in looking at, you know, the politics in the, in the grander scheme of things, uh, when you're talking about uh, the state of Israel, and especially given, um, uh, as you so accurately said, uh, a shift to a more conservative or hard right uh, point of view, which is a trend that we are now seeing uh, in a lot of other places across the globe, including here in the United States, uh, as represented by what happened uh, with, you know, President Trump, his administration, and some of the politics that continue to come out of four years of Trumpism and, a, and an ongoing effort uh, in various southern states. And then we've seen the same thing occur uh, in other places across the globe. Uh, it is kind of a little uh, disconcerting. Um, when you look at queer identity for Palestinians, uh, it almost comes down to a question of if they cannot truly live authentically as themselves and they're unable to have fulfilling uh, free livelihood or life uh, you know, in Israel itself, then it sounds to me as though there's only kind of one option, and that's to relocate or apply for asylum elsewhere. Uh, do you find that to be a fairly accurate assessment? Well, I really, really think it depends on a set of factors. You know, as I mentioned briefly earlier, you know, it, if you do come from a more privileged background socioeconomically, if your family is more open-minded, you're more educated, and you live in a city it is a lot it is a lot easier and and you can make life work but if you come from a more conservative background it can be really really difficult and unsustainable and leaving becomes the only option that is actually viable absolutely right, fair enough i uh, yeah. one of the things oh go ahead rap yeah go ahead yeah yeah i just i'm i'm just i i was sort of intrigued with um uh, what you described as, as kind of the three um, political factions within um, the, the Palestine um, say nation, but, you know, um, territories. And it, it, I'm sort of, I struggle a little bit because, it, I mean, in the United States, we obviously don't have the external op- oppression like um, you do with, with Israel. Um, but just, for sake of analogy, if Russia was suddenly exerting its um, 
power over the United States somehow and had that kind of leverage and they were close by and you know, we were feeling oppressed. And we had this one faction that was the evangelical Christians that um, thought we were worthy of death ourselves. I, I would struggle as to which was the worst evil to have over me. Um, the <laughs> internal one that is fighting for, for my liberation, but under their terms that I would be put to death if, if I was who I was, or the outside force that just was economically across the board, everybody of my, my um, ethnicity, you know, was already um, going to be, you know, oppressed. Um, and I'm imagining that's kind of what the situation is for the uh, queer Palestinian. And my question, I guess, would be: Is what? Where is happiness? Where? Where do we? Where do we get to the? Um, that neither one of those have have the uh, power over you. Yeah, I mean, it's true that we face systems of oppression that are both external and internal and the external and the internal systems of oppression intersect in powerful ways and we have to resist both of them and what's incredible is that there is a queer Palestinian movement which I chronicle in the book and that I highlight its remarkable you know creativity agency and resistance and and resilience and it is so important that we remember that Palestinians do lead multi-dimensional lives and so yes mm-hmm. Palestinians overwhelmingly are oppressed and queer Palestinians are even more oppressed, uh, and that there is real suffering and that there is real violence that, that we face, you know, from, and from so many directions. But Athenians also try to lead normal lives as much as they can, and they make love, and they celebrate weddings, and they celebrate birthdays, and they celebrate graduations, and they pursue their education, and they build institutions, and they build civil society, and they rebuild their demolished homes. So it, there is pleasure, you know, there is joy, there is light, there is color, there's food, there's history, there are traditions. It's, it's an incredibly beautiful people and a beautiful society as well in the face of all the ugliness and badness that we have to face as well and so I I really appreciate your question because it helps us remember to uplift that at the same time and one thing I wanted to and I I realized that in the book it it gets discussed a little bit in the the realm of pink washing but um, and it isn't uh, a frequent occurrence although it's depicted oftentimes in media and films probably because it is sort of the Romeo and Juliet kind of concept, which is exciting for a filmmaker to, to depict. But um, talk to us a little bit about um, the romance between an Israeli individual and a Palestinian individual and um, how those relationships often play out when they do occur. Yeah, you know, so, so these definitely occur. They are not common. So, you know, I don't want to give our listeners the wrong impression that somehow, you know, there are all of these, you know, Israeli-Palestinian gay love affairs happening left and right all over the place. They're definitely not common, but they definitely do exist, not just in film, but also in reality. And sometimes the films are based on the realities. And my position on this is very controversial, as you can imagine, because, you know, not everyone is happy with with how I actually contextualize and analyze this phenomenon. But for me personally, I actually 
find these relationships to be a profound form of resistance and resistance in the face of Israel's apartheid system. You know, Israel's system, as I mentioned, its largest human rights organization has really emphasized that this is an apartheid system, Human Rights Watch, the world's largest human rights organization also just published a report that Israel is an apartheid system between Israelis and Palestinians. So in the face of all of these very powerful voices that are segregate these populations, physically separate them from one another and give superior rights for one over the other, what more powerful way to resist that system of segregation than to actually forge human bonds of connection and even love across these lines of difference and to enter into relationships, especially relationships where it's on equal footing. You know, I, for me personally, I do see this as a, a really, really beautiful and profound and powerful form of resistance. And that's how I write about it in the book. Mm-hmm. I have to say there's one part in the book that I absolutely cringed. Um, and it was, um, it was early on when, um, you had a mention of somebody coming in complaining in, in their comparison of the uh, LGBTQ freedom between Israel and Palestine of being able to – coming into the Palestine territories and not being able to find anybody on Grinder, And it just – you know, apart from that being used as a yardstick of the level of freedom of Israel versus Palestine, which is – kind of ridiculous. Um, it just, um, I found it it's subtly an indictment about some of the mindset of what people look to as a quote-unquote LGBTQ culture, um, where it is, I think it's different than that. I think it's a, you know, a sexual freedom culture instead that, that gets misused or misapplied um, in terms of uh, you know being part of the LGBTQ experience, um, did you want to make some comment on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, this is a reference to you know a public forum that I was a part of, and this uh, young man who was you know gay and and very very supportive of the Israeli government and very right wing and very anti-Palestinian so sort of in the debate format you know he he thought that he was going to you know make this point and that it was going to be a gotcha point like see look that's a damning point like look how backwards the Palestinians are so the point that he made was that when he was in the West Bank um, and he went to the Palestinian town of Hebron and then logged onto Grindr there were no Palestinian profiles of gay Palestinians on Grindr in the area so this was the sort of evidence that he cited to be like, look how backwards, look how homophobic, you know, your, your people are. And basically that as a result, you guys deserve to be oppressed as a people. And so I just, it was, you know, it was laughable, but it was also disheartening and dispiriting. And I sort of write about that vignette, you know, to sort of illustrate this example of a kind of pinkwashing, a kind of homonationalism, a kind of privilege, you know, and a kind of myopic tone deafness that unfortunately mm-hmm. exists among some of the more right-wing oriented members of queer communities. I, I just found it depressing in terms of being a lifelong activist to look at that as like, is that what progress looks like? Is that what the goal was? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the we yard. Absolutely. You know, 
Yeah. 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 The that, uh, we got more grinder profiles. Yay. Okay. Well, let me let me rethink this. <laughs> anyway, um, Brody. Yeah, that's. Um, I know. I'm with you on that. I mean the the yardstick of you know equality for Palestinian queer people should never ever ever be something like grinder. Um, <laughs> you know, one of, one of the things that, uh, you know, I don't think, and this is just because it's, it's more of a cultural thing, maybe it's because, and I'll, I'll pin the blame, you know, on my profession, because I don't think sometimes those of us in the media do a really good job with this. You know, I think Americans don't understand how many indignities there are for Palestinians in general. Uh, you know, it's, I, I had one person point out to me that it's, you know, akin to the American Jim Crow laws only on steroids. Um, but the other part of it is, is that, you know, that there, because there is such an imbalance, since there isn't parity and there is no equity there for the Palestinians, if you start looking at queer public, you know, at, at queer Palestinians, it gets even more skewed uh, because, you know, even if they're in, like, I don't know, an embracing culture, let's say, in, for example, Tel Aviv, you know, they're still kind of in a place because they are Palestinian uh, where they don't, you know, get to fully embrace, you know, that sort of equality rights and freedom and that sort of thing. And I, and I don't think, you know, a lot of times uh, Americans uh, and others, and not just Americans, I mean, this is Canadians and people in the U.K. and elsewhere don't quite get that. Um, and yeah. Brody, I'm, you know, I'm afraid I've got to, I've got yeah. to cut you off. We're out of time. I'm trying to let you oh, make your point, okay. but, but uh, we're up against the window here. So anyway, uh, uh, Saeed, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Um, appreciate your work. It, it, like I said at the top of the show, it's vitally important. Um, I believe they can get the book Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique on Amazon.com. Is that right? Correct. Thank you so much. It was a real honor. Thank you both. Uh, our, our pleasure, and thank you for bringing in incredibly valuable insight um, to the situation and to the region. Um, very educational, and people need to embrace this. Um, for Brody and myself, thank you for listening in. Next week, we will have a fantastic new show for you. Um, like I say, don't know what it is. But I know it will be fantastic, and we want you to listen. Please do tell your friends and neighbors to subscribe to the podcast. Um, we try to bring you the best uh, possible LGBT programming around. Um, and we will be back again next week. Thank you for listening, and thank you for everything you do. And um, I mean that for Sid and um, Brody as well. Um, we'll be back again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.